We are learning Daf Samach Aleph. We're starting from the bottom of Samach Amid Beis. The Gemara tells us a whole list of facts about the way that a, wo- a woman's in, uh, actions can impact the child that she has. The Gemara says, Mishamsha If a woman has relations by a Rechaya, which is where they used to grind the grain, Havlobini Nechbe. She will have children uh, with issues with them, some sort of epilepsy. Mishamsha If a woman has relations while she's on the ground, Havlobini Shemuti. She will have a child with necks, uh, neck problems. If a woman walks on what the dung of a donkey, have done She have children who have issues with keeping uh, with keeping their hair. The woman who eats too much mustard, have She have children who eat too much. The a woman who eats a certain types of vegetable, have She have children with a certain type of uh, condition in their eyes, runny runny eyes with tears. A woman who eats very small fish, have the bene mitsitsi eina. Have a problem with their eyes that they open and shut a lot. A woman who eats a certain type of clay, have bene mechu are. She will have ugly, bad looking children. A woman who drinks a lot of beer, have the bene ukame. She will have darker children, darker complexion. For women eats meat and drinks wine, good, healthy children. A woman who eats eggs, she has children with very large eyes. A woman who eats fish, she will have good uh, children with chain, like a person with good charm. For women who eat celery, she will have children who shine. Korbasta, if a woman eats this type of seeds, coriander seeds have later been a serenity. The children will be fatter. The achla esroga, if a woman eats esrog, the good smell of the then that will uh, give a good fragrance to her children. And the Gemara says the story, the mother of the daughter of King Shopper. So this is the mother, the mother of the princess. Here, she ate an esrog when she was pregnant. They would bring her in front of her father, the king. It was like the head of the fragrances, meaning that she smelled so good that she was uh, highlighted in the palace. Says the Gemara, now we're continuing. The, the, one of the obligations that a wife has to her husband is to nurse his child. So, tested us. What was the question? Let's say that the wife says she wants to nurse, and the husband says that uh, no. In other words, he wants her not to nurse because he wants her to keep on looking as beautiful, and she wants to nurse. So what's the law? We listen to her. Because it will be in pain. She'll be in pain if she doesn't nurse. So therefore, she's given uh, the choice about whether or not she wants to. Let's say it's the opposite. The husband wants her to nurse, and the wife does not. When it's not her family's custom to nurse, meaning she comes from usually the more wealthy and of the family, they would hire wet nurses as opposed to doing it themselves. So it's if not her family's custom to nurse, they're a little bit more wealthy. Show them love. We listen to her because she can. She she's used to that standard. He But if it is the customer for family to nurse, but it's not his custom. What's Do we go after his family? after hers? And the question basically is: it's a question on like the standards. If she, if, she, if she stand doesn't want to do it. But her, her family normally does, and it's his family normally hires a wet nurse. So do we say she married into the wealth, and therefore she assumes 
that status of her husband's family that she wouldn't have to nurse her or not. We resolve it from the following price. So it says in the price of Olimo, if anybody read this email, that a woman rises to the status of her husband in marriage, but she doesn't descend. So meaning, whenever it's Allah, like what a woman is accustomed to and what you have to provide for her, and there are many different afghaminas. We'll see about this coming up, that she, a husband provides for, for his wife according to her standard of wealth. So then we always say that the rule is she goes up, but she doesn't go down with him. So in our case, if either he or she comes from a wealthy family, so the woman's not going to be obligated to nurse because she, she's going to raise that family. Either she comes from it or she, she connects to her husband's family. So therefore, we're not going to force her if, um, if, if she married into a wealthy family where the custom is not to nurse. Amar Huna Micra, where do you see this idea, at least the concept? Allusion to this from a pasuk. The pasuk says, "Vehi buulas baal." So normally that's just a way of saying that she's a married woman, but it's a strange term. Usually we would say "eshesish." Why buulas baal? Baal yosher shabal yosher shabal. She goes up with the husband. She doesn't go down with the husband. says she was the mother of all the chai. She was the mother of all living things. For life, that woman was given for marriage. She wasn't given over uh, for a sense of suffering. So therefore, she always she always says the improvement. In through what happens for marriage, and that is not a uh, descent. Okay, so then the Mishnah had listed a whole list of chores that a wife has to do for her husband, but uh, we say that she brought him from one maidservant, so then she's exempt from the, the grinding of the grain, the baking of the bread, and the laundry. So the Gemara says, implies that the rest of the things she has to do. She has to cook, nurse, make the bed, work with the wool. So the Gemara says, why is that? Why can't she say to her husband, I brought you another woman to do my job? So meaning, there were seven chores that I would have done, so now I have a maidservant, so then, uh, so then let, let my maidservant do all seven. So the more answers, Mishim Da'amar La, the husband can say to her, This one is going to work for me and for her, but who's going to work for you? So meaning what we're saying, well, one woman is capable of doing all the seven chores for two people, but not three. So the wife could do all the seven chores for herself and her husband, but if there's a maidservant, she's going to obviously have to take care of herself as well. So it's a, it's a, she's not going to be enough um, she's not going to have enough time or enough capacity to do enough for three people. That's why one um, maidservant only gets the wife out of grinding, baking, and laundering. She brought in two Then she doesn't even have to cook or nurse. It sounds like she still has to do the rest. It sounds like there's still two, still two chores that she has to do, which is make up the whole bed and work with wool. Why is that? Here, if there's two, she should say to her husband, I brought you another woman, who will do it for me and for her. The first one will work for you and for her. So meaning now, if we've worked out the arithmetic here, that one person does the seven chores for two people, so two maidservants should be good for seven, to do the seven chores for four people. So what's the issue? So the answer is, the husband can say to her, Who's going to be busy with the long with the guests who are here for a long time and the passerbys? Meaning, we're, she, you, you are going to have to help. So it sounds like we're saying that that a wife is obligated to toil for all of the people who are dependent upon the husband, and even the people just passing by, they have to work for it. So therefore, even if there are two maid servants, that covers for four people. But what about if there's guests um, who, who might be staying, and therefore uh, we need more? Now, then it said, Shalosh, if there are three maidservants, eight months has to enough to make up the better work with wool. So again, Hashara Abzal, you have the implication that she has to do something. It sounds like the this, this specific seven chores she doesn't have to do, but she still has to do the minor things. We see that. For this. It says if there are four, then she could sit around and, and do nothing. So it sounds like if there are three, there are still minor chores which she does. So here, I brought you another maidservant to attend to the long-term guests and the people passing through. So, so here, certainly, she should be off. So the more answer is, the husband can say, there are times when 
there are people, a lot of people in the household, a lot of, you know, people, kids are coming and whatnot. And there could also be guests and passive residents and all of that. And at pre- those pressing times, you might need even more. If there are times like that, then I feel like who says four maidservants should be good. And others basically we're explaining that one maidservant can do the chores for two people. So, but maybe we're going to have a crazy times when the house is totally full with all these long-term guests and, and, and people in the house who are there. But at that time, we're saying three is not enough. So what makes us so guaranteed that uh, four is enough? And that's the, the basic question. So why is four the maximum as we see from the Gemara? So the Gemara answer is, they're able to help out one another. So four maids can, can, can handle seven chores for all the people who are around. So it's like a certain maximum number that we see in four. With the number four, everything's going to be good. Says the Gemara, When the Mishnah said that the wife is exempt from doing all the chores or some of the chores when there are maidservants, it doesn't mean that she actually brought them in. It doesn't mean that there are physically other maidservants who are present. The rule is that if she has a big dowry that she brought in, which is fit, it, 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 it makes sense to bring in the maidservants from the dowry. In other words, it's, it makes sense that there's so much money around that so, some of the money should be used to buy maidservants, to use the maidservants. So then she's exempt. Even though she herself didn't practically bring in the maidservants. Tana, the bride says, this doesn't make a difference whether she brought in the maidservant for him as part of the dowry. Let's say she was mitzamzim, meaning she had small change, small little amounts of money, and she added it all up um, over the time of her marriage, and she was able to finally afford to buy a maidservant. In that case as well, we would say the same thing, um, that once the said there is a maidservant who is present, then it gets her off the hook with the chair. So with the chores. But bottom line is we're saying, obviously she brings in maidservants to the marriage. You could have these halachos. Even if the dowry is large enough, you could have these halachos. And then the last point, is that if the sheep buys a maidservant at some point during the marriage as well, these halachos are relevant. Then what do we say? Therefore, then she could sit easy. Even though we say she is not obligated to do these chores, she should um, make a drink for him. So this idea with the wine, it used to be very uh, highly concentrated wine, so they'd have to dilute it. So she can fix him a drink, make his bed. So even though that was one of the chores, but we mean here just spreading the sheet over, not making up the whole bed, which was, you know, much more with the mattress and pillow. Here we just mean like with the sheet, like a small little makeup of a bed. She can wash his, she should wash his, his face, hands, and feet. So these three things are considered like acts of service that are affectionate. And there, even if the woman's not obligated in terms of to serve him, but just like basic acts of affection, these three things, making him drinks, spreading the sheet over his bed, washing his hands, so those are things which she should do. All these halachos that a woman does for her husband, the seven chores, even those the bottle, even Anita can do. In other words, the regular chores that we're saying that should be done, the seven, even Anita does, they're not considered affectionate that they might lead to relations. However, these things, these things which are affectionate acts of service, those are things which we're concerned um, might lead them, the couple, to have relations, and she's Anita, and therefore they're forbidden for Anita. Continues the Gemara to modify one point. Hatzalasamita, this that we say that she can't spread the sheet on his bed when she's Anita. Amarava, that's only true, she does it in front of the husband, so that might, you know, um, arouse them. But if she does it not in front of them, less than then it is mutter. Continues the Gemara, Maziga Sakos. In terms of mixing up the cups, mixing the cup of wine, so Shmuel's wife, she would switch it. She would do it in an unusual way and use her left hand. So since she did it with the left hand, so that was, that was a reminder that she was also to her husband and would then 
prevent them from doing, having relations. Similarly, the other people did other shinim. Abai's wife would put the cup on the, on, on, where she would put it down for him um, on the mouth of the jug, meaning not put it on a regular place. It wasn't like she was serving him regularly. Rabba's wife would put it on the put the cup on the pillow. Papa's wife would put the cup on eight stools. These people were all doing different sorts of shinuyim uh, changes in the way that they would serve their husband in order that it should be clear and that it was distinct and separate so it wouldn't lead uh, to relations. Continues the Gemara, there's a little bit of a tangent. All foods can stay around in front of the waiter until after the meal. In other words, here the question is, what's the expectation? If somebody has a waiter, so you have a bunch of people eating together and they hired a waiter. So can they, when, when does the waiter get to eat? So the expectation is that he gets to eat, but at what point? So we're saying that we can delay feeding him. In other words, it's not considered too hard for the waiter to, to serve them and only eat after the meal. All foods can sit around and you don't give him a chance to eat. Except for meat and wine. Meat and wine, that you have to let him eat it because the craving can be so strong if it's there and he's not allowed to eat and these delicacies, the meat and the wine are present, that the, the, only, the only thing that's correct there is to allow him to eat during the meal. Only means fatty meat and aged wine. That's specifically where the cravings might come in. The fatty meat, the whole year, the aged wine is during the summer season. That's when uh, evidently the aromas from the wine are the strongest, which the person, might, the waiter might really want. I was once standing in front of Marshmul. They brought him some sort of dish with mushrooms. If he hadn't given him for me to eat it, I would have got danger. I would have been in danger. And these are sometimes these ideas when a person develops a very strong craving for a certain type of food, unless it is satisfied, they can be in danger. I was once in front of Marshmul. They had some turnip heads with vinegar. If he didn't give it to me, I would have been in danger. This can even true if there's a date, which is an extremely good date. It's got a lot of high fat content on the date. Even something like that could theoretically endanger somebody's health. In other words, whenever there's a craving, even if it doesn't seem like it's the the highest delicacy necessarily, it still is. It still is. Um, it still is an issue that if a person's not satisfied right away, then it can it can danger it can, it can danger the mouth and it endanger their health. And the Gemara tells us what's the rule: Kolo de milsa. Called the Isli Reich of Isli Kiyua, if there's a good smell uh, or some sort, of, some sort of specific thing that grabs the person, the Kiyua, then it can harm a person if he's not able to eat from it. On the bottom here of Samach Aleph, Amad Aleph. The Gemara is saying how you have a waiter and he's serving people, so the question is when, when does a waiter get to eat? So regular foods, the waiter can just eat after the meal. During, but if it's a particularly good food, has a great smell or some fatty meat, some great wine, so then it's actually considered dangerous for a waiter not to be able to eat when he's serving. There are like these cravings that a person can develop for food, and unless they're satisfied, then a person can actually get sick. So then the expectation is that even though you hire the waiter, he's allowed to eat during the meal. The Gemara tells us a story, they would feed the waiters. One would feed the waiter from each and every course, meaning to say, he would eat like as he was serving. Every course as it came out, he would eat from. One would only give him one course, meaning he would only have something in the beginning of the meal, and then he wasn't allowed to eat until the rest of the meal was over. So, what, so it seems like they were both being sensitive to the waiter, but one was obviously doing it a lot more. So one of them, Elio and Navi, would speak to him. The other one, Elio and Navi, would not speak to him. So meaning to say, Elio and Navi, um, 
would come and converse with these tzaddikim, but there was a difference in their level of piety here, and Eliyahu would only speak to the one who served the waiter each and between each and every course. Another story here, some say that the people who they were was Ramari and Rapinchas, the sons of Rapinchas. One would feed the waiter from every course before the waiter would serve him. One would feed his waiter only after they were already served. So here's the question. Certainly they're giving him every, they're feeding the waiter at every course, but the question is before or after the waiter serves. To call him, the one who fed the waiter first, would speak with him. The one who fed the waiter after, would not speak to them. So that's even more of a, of a higher sensitivity to give the waiter to eat even before he uh, gives it to you. Says the Gemara, now we're going to see a wild story here with how important it is to eat when you have a craving. They were sitting by the entrance to the palace of this king. It was called Izgur the king. There was some sort of... Um, butler of some sort that was carrying food for the king that was passing by. Chazir Ravashi, the Marzitra Ravashi, saw Marzitra's face, top of the Almond Bays. The Chavar Apeik had turned like white. Rashi explains that it turned white from this deep, deep, intense craving that he developed to eat the food. So what did he do? So Ravashi saw, when he saw his colleague Marzitra's face go white, he took some of the food with his finger. In other words, he took his hands and grabbed some of the food, and he put it inside of Marzitra's mouth. So here we talk about, the post can talk about maybe, you know, it was only he was only trying to, it wasn't kosher food necessarily, he just put it in his mouth, he didn't eat it, it was just to satisfy the craving, he shouldn't get sick. So he put it in his mouth. So Amalei, the baller got upset, he said, if Sadhu sued the Malka, you ruined the king's meal, the king's not going to eat from anything that remains once you touch his food. Amalei, I'm David Achi. So the, the police now is after him. They say, why'd you do this? Amalei, said, whoever prepares food the way you guys prepared it, actually, you should be, we should be, we, you should be disqualified from, from, from your jobs. Meaning, they suddenly turned the tables and they told the police, they said, Whoever prepared the food was actually trying to hurt the king. So said, what are you talking about? I said, I saw something else on the meat. What is something else? A term is always something for taras, meaning I saw that there was some sort of affliction in the meat. It was bad meat. And you were going to serve the meat to the king, and that's why I quickly touched it so that, so that the king wouldn't do it. They looked at it, they didn't find anything wrong with the meat. So Ravashi took the finger of the, the butler and he put it on a piece of meat and he said, Did you look over here? They looked at the piece of meat, a miracle occurred, and they found the leprosy on the meat. So Ravashi says, Ravashi, my time is Samachasanisa. Like, what kind of what kind of thing is that? You know, normally we don't rely on Nisim. We don't assume Nisim will happen. So why did you do that? I saw some sort of spirit, some sort of Ruach of Saras that was coming off of him. Coming off of who? Rashi says Marzutra. Remember Marzutra was the person who really craved the food when it was passing by. And he, that's how the whole thing started. That, 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 that Ravashi gave him some of the food. So, so he was able to see some sort of ruach of saras coming off of his body. That's how he knew that there must have been some leprosy on the meat, and that's how he got him out of the whole thing. All right, continues the Gemara. By the way, the Gemara Mishnayis and, and Yuma talk about some sort of things, how you can have, like, pregnancy certainly affects cravings. We know that, it, but to the extent, the danger that, like we're talking about in our Gemara, a person can even eat on Yom Kippur if they have these sort of cravings, because the danger that we're talking about, about not satisfying these cravings, can be very intense. Says my there was once a Roman who said to a woman, you marry me. I'm a little low. She said, No. Also, I see Roman is a little trick over here. He got some pomegranates, probably he, he cut them open. He ate them in front of her. So there was a lot of saliva which came in her mouth because she was craving. 
what did she do with this live balate? She swallowed it. And he, he was torturing her. He didn't give her to eat until she became like so bloated that it was like zagla, like there was like a change in the complexion of her skin. So the sof, he said to her, if, if I heal you now from, this, from the issue in your skin, are you going to marry me? And she said, yes. Also, I see money. He went and got more pomegranates. Poly achla kame. Again, he cuts them open. He eats them in front of her. Amalai says to her, All the saliva that was that was that was causing you all the pain, spit it out. In other words, instead of swallowing, spit it out this time. Some sort of like a green leaf came out of her. It dies, and she was healed after she was uh, spat all the saliva. So I guess the point of the story is just to see how uh, real these cravings can be. All right, what was the last thing we, the Mishnah, the last chore of the seven chores that a wife has to do? Osa Batsemer. She has to work with wool. She has to produce wool. So the one says Batsemer and Bepishim Lo. It sounds like she only has to work with wool, but not with flax. Why? who is Artana, a husband can't force his wife to stand before his father. In other words, she could force the wife to, to, to serve him, but she can't force. She, he, she can't be forced to serve his father. Or to stand before his son. To stand in front of his son to serve him. She can't be forced to give straw to his animal. Why is that? So Rashi explains that we're talking about a horse or a donkey. And with the, hor- the horse or the donkey, evidently that um, it, they might be enticed for bestiality. So it's very interesting. In other words, it's considered a bad job for a wife because too much around that, that, that type of animal could lead to bestiality. In front of cattle, it's allowed because cattle usually aren't, don't have as much bestiality as horses do. Um, okay, so that's okay. He can't force her to work with flax. Flax causes some sort of bad smell because it, if a person... Will always have to wet the thread of the flax um, when they're making the linen. So it, it puts that bad flax, this bad smell, puts the odor in their mouth. So it causes a, like a, some sort of chronic bad, bad breath for the woman. It can also cause her lips to swell. So therefore, she is not expected to have to do such a thing. Says the Gemara, we qualify right where you said, behind me, this is only true. Bikitana Roma, it's a flax, the Roman flax. Certain types of flax specifically, but regular flax, not that way. Um, evidently, it doesn't apply. All right, then we, then we have Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer who's made a statement. Even if there are 100 maidservants, he could still force it to work. So, in other words, the first time it was saying that with each maidservant that she brings in, then it makes her chores less. She's able to say, Look, my maidservant will do with you. Rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer says, No, 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 no. It can lead to adultery, it can lead to promiscuous activity if a woman has nothing to do. And therefore, she, he, can be compel, she, he can compel her to work with the wool. Amar of Malkio, interesting name for an Amar of Malkio, Amar of Adabra, we pass in this way. Even if she has more than four maidservants and she's exempt from most of the stuff, but she still can be forced um, to, to, to work with the wool so that she doesn't come to sin. So this was in the name of Rav Malkio. Now there's another Amora whose name was Rav Malkia. Who also said a lot of things. So, because Rav Malkiyo and Rav Malkiyo are confusing, so the Gemara goes on a tangent just so you know which things were said Rav Malkiyo and which things were said Rav Malkiyo. So, Amar of Chanina Bered Rav Yika, Shvud, Allah about a spit. There's a whole Allah on Beya about if you, have, you roast meat on a spit, the question is, does it become repulsive? Is it muksa on Yantif afterwards to move that, that Shvud, to move that grill? Shvachos, the Allah that we just said about the Shvachos, and even if there are four maidservants that she still has to do. A little bit of work that we pass like that. The gumos, the halacha about pores. So here we're talking about the two pubic hairs. What if there are pores? Is that that might be a sign of her of puberty, even though there are no hairs? 
Uh, those were all said by Rav Malkiyo. Whereas below is the halacha about how a certain type of haircut, which you're not allowed to do, which resembles the Goyim. Ephraim Milkla, the halacha of the ashes. So this is about if you want to put ashes on a wound so it can heal it, but the problem is it leaves a mark. So it's like it might be an issue of a tattoo. Ugvina, the halacha of cheese, that the reason cheese is also if it's produced by Goyim. Um, Rav Malkia says is because they would lie, they would like give a, a, a layer of some they would put some lard on the cheese which isn't kosher that, those, those three things were said by Rav Malkia so the Gemara is just telling you it's just like random shas things you know some things were said by Rav Malkia certain things were Rav Malkia Rav Papa Amr a little bit different Masnisa and Masnisa anything that was based upon a Mishnah or Brisa is Rav Malkia Shmaisa things that were just based out of the blue from the statement of Amora that's Rav Malkia now, which one switches because of that? Like, who cares? So the first one, Rav Hanina was saying the spit, the maidservant, and the pores were Ramalkiyo. And Rav Papa is saying, no, only two of those things are really Ramalkiyo. And that with the maidservants, which comes from the Mishnah, that should really be Ramalkiyo. Because according to him, anything which was mentioned from the Mishnah is Ramalkiyo, not Ramalkiyo. So that's the difference. The, the, the Shvacha is the, what is the one, the Shvacha, the Allah of the maidservant is the one that switches. You see, Manach, if you wanted a monarch to remember this, Masnisa, Malkisa, anything that's mentioned in a Bayatana is like a queen, right? It's like a higher standard. So anything that, that, that was mentioned in Mishnah or Baisa, the statement was then issued in terms of the Allah by Rav Malkia. Continues the Gemara, but now what's the practical difference between our Papa and our Hanina? Now, Shvachos, the difference was, again, the statement from the Shvachos was it said by Malkia or Malkia. Continues the Gemara, Shemuel Gamliel Omer, the Mishra Gamliel Ad. He said that even if a husband took a vow that his wife shouldn't do any work, so we say that he has to divorce her and pay her. Why? Because it could make her insane. So we have two different things. The first Tana, Rabbi Lezer, was saying she still has to work, even if she has four Shvachos, she still has to do something because it could lead to adultery. The second Tana is saying it could lead her to insanity. So the Gemara says, what's the difference? Either way, either way, whether it's concerned to adultery or insanity, it, it, halacha is the same, that even if there are four struggles, she still has to do a little bit of work. So the Gemara says, fascinating things here. She plays with animals, like little small animals. She has maybe pets or that she attends to or looks after. Or... Uh, small animals, or so, so not rashir. So the big question about is not rashir. It's an old question. Some sort of game, some sort of club that she's part of. There are many who try to translate this as a game that refers to chess. And, but either way, the point is that the woman is keeping herself busy. So therefore, while, if it's a question of it leading to adultery, leading to a promiscuous thing, so these things don't, that's not the type of thing that can keep her away because. It's not, you know, it's not so important, whatever it is. So it's not, it doesn't, if the concern is adultery, it doesn't keep her away. But if the question is the insanity, just that she loses her mind because she's bored. So she's not bored. She has what to do and therefore it's okay. All right. So that ends up being a machloka. So bottom line is we have three opinions. If a woman has many, many slaves that she brings in, more than four, so does she have to do anything? One opinion says then she doesn't have to do anything. One opinion says she still has to do it because we're concerned about the adultery. Um, and one opinion says she still has to do it because of the, it might lead to insanity and the difference between the second and third opinion where she has these other hobbies. All right, so now we move on to Ona. One of the obligations that a husband has for his wife is to have relations with her. And this has nothing to do with procreation, it's separate from procreation, even if she's pregnant or whatever. There's still halacha of Ona. She exists of Ona So we try to figure out like what is the expectation here. So a mother says she a person made a vow against his wife not to have relations with her. Um, so what's the law? If the term of the vow was up to two weeks, so that's okay. 
but but more is an issue. Even if it's more than just uh, then no, if it's if the term was less than one week, it's not an issue. So basically, Vesil is saying more than one week is an issue. That goes against his obligations of owner. So if he made such a vow, then we force him to divorce her. And and Bishami says, no, it's okay up to two weeks. Anything under two weeks is okay. So now the Mishnah tells us that very interesting halacha, that it actually varies from person to person and in terms of what their job is. And and the idea that's behind it is that this is something which is a woman's right, but at the same time, it's, it's she can be mochal, it's how much she wants it or doesn't want it. So if there's a certain job that the husband has, so then we can kind of like assume she's okay, she, she's okay with it. So the Mishnah gives us examples. Let's say there are students. Even if they're, they're not given explicit permission, they can leave without explicit permission for up to 30 days at a time, meaning they're 30 days at home and then 30 days out in some distant yeshiva study. And people have a job. That's where uh, we say that they can go away for up to um, up to one week. Whereas if he's living at home, then the mission is going to tell us coming up, we'll see that it's going to be, usually the expectation would be that they have relations at least twice a week. But here the mission is saying a different point, that if they have a job, they're they're, they're polling, then they can leave for a week at a time. That's normal. The rights of a woman to have owner in the Torah. If it's for tayolin, the Gemara will tell us what tayolin are. But the basic point is that they have time, they're not working, vacation, so then it's, um, theoretically, it's, it's intimacy every day. Polim Shtayim B'Shabbos, the regular person with a job, is two times a week. A Hamar Machas B'Shabbos, a donkey driver is once a week. Because if you marry to a donkey driver, you know he's busy, he's on the road a lot. Hagamalim, a camel driver who goes, right, camel drivers are hired for much longer trips. So then it's Achas L'Shoshim Yom, it's like once in 30 days. You think about it, you know, it's like today, the equivalent would be like a pilot or something like that. A sailor, so there he's clearly gone for very long stretches of times. Is one in six months. Different, Rabbi Eliezer. These, these rules, these regulations, these time limits were set by Rabbi Eliezer. So first, we see we open the opening idea in the Mishnah is that the machlokas between Rishon and Yisrael is like what's the standard for how long a person can go. So Yisrael said one week. Rishon said two weeks. And then Afkimina was when a person took a vow, answering his wife, Atash Roshimita, for a certain amount of time. So according to Beishamah, it's fine if it's up until two weeks. According to Beishamah, it's okay, only if it's up until one week. So the Mar says, time Where does Beishamah get this for? You know, that uh, the intimacy is, uh, is required once in two weeks. They learn from what the Torah says when you give birth to a female. What does the Torah say? That there's 14 days of Tumah. So if you give birth to a male, there's seven days of Tumah when the couple can't be intimate, cannot be intimate. And if it's a uh, a female, then it's two weeks. So Beishamah says, hey, look, I see that it's up to two weeks. The Torah is okay with that, with the couple not being intimate. So we see that that's okay. So up until two weeks is not an issue. We learn it from someone who gives birth to a male, where relations are also for only one week. So Beishamah says it's only one week you can go, Beishamah says up to two weeks. But the Gemara obviously asks on Beishamah, should learn from the cave. In other words, the Torah, yes, it's true, by Zachar, it's only a week, but by the cave, it's two weeks. So clearly we see it's okay to go up until two weeks without having relations. The Gemara now switches completely. If you would learn from the Yoledes, you're right, then you would see up to two weeks. Basil doesn't learn from the Yoledes at all. Basil says we learn from the laws of Nida. Nida is also only one week. Right, so just she bleeds, and then a week later she goes to the mikvah. Today we have new Durabanans, but the essential din of Nida. Is only a week. So now, basically, we're saying Basil Be- Be- is not looking at the Oledas at all, and he's just looking at Nida, that's why it's a week. Be- and Bishamay learns from the Oledas, that's why it's two weeks. So the Gemara says, well, what's the real root of the question here? But Michael Mifflegi, you could learn from the Oledas, so why not? So Basil says, you will only learn from common things. So in other words, Nida is common. The Oledas is once in a you know, blue moon, a girl actually gives birth. 
So therefore, what we're saying is we're not going to learn from there that the couple abstains from relations for up to two weeks, that that's normal. We learn from what's common. We learn what's normal from Nida, that we see the Torah is okay in the normal scenario with only up until one week. Something that he caused, you learn from something that he caused. Here, the question is, he made a vow on her. So we're trying to figure out what he caused, what's normal. So we, he also causes childbirth. Why does he cause childbirth? Because he impregnated her. So we don't learn from Nida. Nida has nothing to do with the husband. The husband doesn't trigger the Nida. So therefore, we don't learn from Nida. The better comparison is to look at something he causes, so a childbirth, and therefore we see that it's up to two weeks. So now the Gemara says, The whole here is where he, he specified a certain amount of time, meaning he said, that's the whole point, he said, oh, we're not going to have relations for one week, or I'm not going to have relations for two weeks, and that's where there's a dispute, let's say he doesn't say for how long, he just says, we're not going to have relations, he doesn't, he doesn't say, so what's the halacha then, so if you don't say, it's indefinite amount of time, you say we're not going to have relations, that implication is at any point, so then, everybody agrees, you have to divorce her right away and give her the ksuba, meaning, we don't even say wait for a week or two weeks until the, until the, until the pain sets in that's too, heavy, that's too hard to bear. Rather, we say once the nether was set, that's certainly going to bring the pain, then the halacha is that the divorce comes right away and the ksuba is right there. Even if it's an unspecified term where eventually it's going to be put in pain, but it's not there yet, we say the same thing. You wait two weeks according to Bishamah, one week to be still before you have to divorce. Why? Why wait at all? If the nether is forever, then what's the point of waiting? What are we going to gain? The answer is, maybe in the meantime, he'll find a Pesach. That's Allah. When you take a vow, you can be mat or nether, you can annul the vow if you can find some opening that if I would have known X, Y, or Z, I never would have taken the vow. So the vow isn't considered final and binding until, until a certain amount of time. So we give we leave it open that maybe until the pain sets in a week or two weeks or after two weeks that maybe he'll be able to find the pesos. Everybody agrees where he made the nether b'mafarish and he said for one or two weeks okay then the one or two weeks are there but the question is where he said it b'stam so we know the nether here is, is there so the question so one opinion is saying Rav was saying that now he divorces right away Shmuel is saying no maybe we look we wait for the time for um for more time until the pain sets in because maybe he'll find that Pesach. Says the Gemara, why do they have to argue here? They already argued one time about this. It says in the Mishnah, a person said that his wife can't get any Hanah from him for up until 30 days. So this means like a sort of like financial benefit, not, not in terms of, you know, relations because we just said they have to have relations once, or, once a week or once, every, once or two weeks. Um, and we have to figure out, in terms of finances, the Gemara later tells us that the bishop is talking about a case where the woman had been keeping her earnings in place of her sustenance. So the really, the husband didn't have any real strong financial obligations on her. So for up until 30 days, Yamad Parnas, he still has to set up some sort of like middleman to support her. So basically, the Gemara later is very bothered, what's the case? If, if she's using her earnings for her sustenance, then why does she need any money from her husband? And if, and if she does, then doesn't he have to give it to her? So the Gemara will tell us it's like a very specific case where like she has enough of her basic needs, but she doesn't have all of her needs. And there are certain like extras which the, which the rabbis encourage the husband to give, but only non-directly because he's made the nether not to give her uh, benefit. So he does it indirectly through a third party. But if the term of the vow is longer, he has to divorce her and give the ksuba. Why? What's the pshat? The pshat is because after 30 days, everybody becomes aware of her situation. 
situation that her husband isn't taking care of her directly and it's just indirect because he took a vow not to benefit her and that's extremely humiliating to her. She can't, she's not expected to have to live with that humiliation and therefore he has to divorce her with the ksuba. So here's the question. So this is a similar question. If he made a nether that was longer than 30 days, should he divorce her right away? Or do we say, wait until the pain and the humiliation sets in before the divorce has to happen? So over there too, it was a machlokas. That's all that he uses the, the third party to support her. It's only where he specified for 30 days or less. That's where he doesn't divorce her right away. Well, Bistam, if he said unspecified terms, so it's going to last indefinitely, he divorce her right away and he gives it. Even if the case where it was made unspecified way, he will wait and he supports her for, with somebody else for 30 days. And only then does he have to divorce. Why? The same rationale. Because even though right now there's no solution, but maybe in the 30 days we'll find an opening for the vow that will release her, release him from it. So the Machlokas Rav and Shmuel is the same. In our case, it's where he made a nether not to have relations with her indefinitely. He didn't say a time. So the question is, do you wait until the end of the two weeks and then divorce or do you divorce right away? And the same thing over there where he made the thing that's going to ultimately shame her that he's not going to Benefit directly, benefit her directly for thirty days. So, 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 if you're thirty days after, sorry, he said it without specifying the amount of, t- of time. After thirty days, will become humiliating. So, there are also some machlokas. Rabbi Shmuel, he should divorce right away. So, why do we need both cases of the machlokas? Says the Gemara, it's free. It was necessary. It is If it was only in this case by marital relations, welcome a Rabbi Shmuel after with Barnes. I would say there, Rob said he's divorced right away because you can't give relations through a third party, right? So therefore, the effect is felt right away. So even if the the higher pain is only felt at the end, uh, is only felt right at the end, but the, the the basic effect is already there. So since there's some basic effect that he can't have relations right now, so we say just divorce right now. He in that case after Rabbanis until thirty days, he could give it through a third party, and the pain the, the pain of the humiliation doesn't come yet. In Moses Shmuel, I would say he should agree to Shmuel. He shouldn't divorce her right away. Maybe he will find the pasach. If you only said that, he only said not to divorce her right away because there you could do it through a butler and we're looking for a Pesach. In this case, you can't give it through a butler. I would say we should agree to Rav, we should divorce her right away. And therefore, it was necessary to say that in both cases, there's actually a machlokas between Rav and Shmuel.